Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us this week. And as we've discussed on this program recently, there are serious questions about whether the position of the Defense Department Chief Management Officer will still exist a few years from now. The 2021 Defense Authorization Bill is working its way through the House and the Senate, and in both chambers, the bill contains language that would do away with the CMO's office. That effort being pushed by lawmakers who believe the office hasn't lived up to Congress's intent to drive transformational business reform across the department. To talk about whether or not that's true, we are joined this week by the CMO herself, Lisa Hirschman. Ms. Hirschman was confirmed last December as the DOD Chief Management Officer, the third highest ranking position in the department. She previously served as the Deputy CMO, and before that, she was the founder and CEO of her own business transformation consulting firm. Ms. Hirschman, thanks again for doing this. And I, and I think the logical place to start this conversation and kind of frame things is, is to, I'd like to hear what your view of, of what the OCMO's mission, core mission really is. And, and part of the reason I ask that is over the years, there have been a lot of things added and subtracted, um, both by Congress and by various administrations to and from the OCMO's job jar. So, so Really, what's the core function? What, what, what do you focus most on day to day? My focus is primarily on reform and transformation in such a way that how do we better uh, the operations of the organization for taxpayer and warfighter benefit? Yeah, so if you're familiar with our, our logo and, uh, and our uh, slogan, it is efficiency for lethality, and that is where my focus is, particularly because it does align directly with the National Defense Strategy line of effort three. So that, that is the bulk of my day. And how about the organization itself? I, I, don't, I don't know what your total headcount is at the moment, but it's not a massive Pentagon bureaucracy by the standards of massive Pentagon bureaucracies. No, it's not. As a matter of fact, I have other organizations that don't necessarily fall under what I just described, oversight and compliance, Washington Headquarters Services, uh, the Pentagon Force Protection Agency, so the police force. So that is all within the OCMO. So we have, a, we have quite a variety uh, of things in addition to reform and transformation. But you're right, it's not a big bureaucracy. Roughly 100 people, give or take, is the last I saw. Is that still about right? Well, if you look at the totality, you know, that's what my uh, team looks like from an OSD standpoint and my directors. But they have an organ, you know, they each have organizations underneath them. They've got contractors. So it, it's, more than, it's more than 100 people. Okay. Considering all those mission sets and, and just the, the massive challenge of trying to drive transformational change across the department, I, I got to imagine the only way you can get anything done is with a lot of partnerships with other DOD organizations, probably CAPE, probably OSD Comptroller, probably a lot of others. What, what do those partnerships look like? Oh, you're absolutely right. And by the way, it's no different from what you do in the private sector as well. And that's, you know, that's my uh, experience and that's what I brought to the table. And the very first thing you do is establish the partnership. Because once you've identified that you're in alignment around the outcome, everybody has skin in the game, and it, it's easier to walk arm in arm and lockstep some distribution of oversight, guidance, enablement, and execution. And that's how you, you, know, you really can make great strides quickly. 
So you're absolutely right. Comptroller in DOD uh, speak, uh, CFO if you're in the private sector, is usually the first organization that you establish a partnership with because they become the validation arm of what your uh, of your results. CAPE has been a great partner uh, with some of the analytical rigor, but certainly I don't want to overlook the other principles within OSD as well as the services and what they have done, uh, what they've accomplished, and then how do you take some of those you know, we're sitting on best practices, not only within our organization, but I introduced best practices from the private sector, and then how do you leverage that across DOD for, for greater efficiency? So I, I've made an effort to partner with all of those uh, organizations and the leaders. People may not fully realize this, but this office has really only existed in its current form for a little over two years. I think it was February of 2018 when the, when the legislation actually took effect. So when, when the office first stood up and the, you, you started to try and create those alignments and establish those partnerships, what did it look like, as far as you can tell, from the rest of the department's point of view? Was there, was there skepticism about, okay, who is this CMO entity? How do we deal with it? Did it take time to earn trust and develop trust? And how has that whole process gone? Sure it did. And that, again, that's not any different from when you're standing up an this type of organization in the private sector. And so there was skepticism largely around what role do you play? What role do I play? Am I giving up any decision-making authority? Uh, those were the typical questions, either stated outright or as, uh, as we found were on their mind but uh, didn't necessarily come right out and say. And so those are, those are perfectly legitimate and reasonable questions because they're logical. And so we spent a lot of stakeholder engagement one-on-one -on -one time to share with them what our role was and what the expectations were of those leaders. But yes, you're absolutely right. Those were typical questions. And, and how much do you think you've done and, and the department it's overall has done to, to move past that skepticism? So certainly it's taken some time. And by the way, I relied on a framework uh, that I wrote about in my book that from years and years and years of studying companies from a variety of uh, sizes and complexity that said these are the nine levers that you need to focus on. And those were part of the conversations that we had with people where we were saying, look, we need to look at measures and, and what we can achieve and what process do we need to improve, all of those levers. So that takes time. And we, even in the private sector, we use a bit of a thumbnail between 18 and 36 months to get that established um, uh, alignment as well as an infrastructure put in place um, in order to gain some traction. And I would say that since January in particular, when the secretary put out a memo that said, I'm putting some peace behind this role, and he said, I want the CMO to essentially become, uh, and I'm using words we had in a conversation, Secretary of the Fourth Estate. And we are now doing our first unified Fourth Estate only um, POM and budget bill. And since then, we've had a huge turning point because one of the things that I have been championing is replacing across the board cuts with reform 
And within the past couple of months, as we're going through this process, I have leaders saying to me, Lisa, when do we get a reform package from you? Because we'd like to use that as an alternative. It helps our business anyway. So we've hit a turning point. And if you look at the typical timeline, even in the private sector, you know, 18 to 36 months, we're right in the middle of that, and we are gaining steam. That's exactly where I wanted to go next was the fourth estate reforms. Um, to flush, flush those reform plans out for me a little bit. I mean, it, you don't have to give me full details on what you're doing in every defense agency and field activity, but just a notional view of what, what a reform plan looks like compared to across-the-board cuts. Sure. So, um, for instance, one of my big initiatives is looking at how we manage contracts. And this is, you know, for goods and services that we buy across DOD. We call it our category management initiative. And when you have about 45,000 contracting officers and 2,500 contracting offices, and you're looking at contracts for commodities, you know, for instance, a battery, and we have multiple contracts for the same battery, and the price points change from a range from $0.13 cents to $25 per unit. This gives us an enormous opportunity to look at how we're managing contracts and can we do a better job and save money? And the answer is yes. And as for an example, if you look at the um, one of the agencies that had an across-the-board cut number, we looked at six of their largest contracts and, and if we renegotiate those and leverage our buying power, we actually are able to save and realize more money than the across-the-board cut. So that's just one example. At the same time, though, I think there is some cutting going on. And, and the example that comes to mind is, I, I believe DCMA is going through a process of doing voluntary early retirements and VSIPs purely for budget reasons. So is that kind of thing because of... CMO directed cuts, or is that something that preceded this effort? Any insight on, on what's driving that kind of thing? Sure. So right now it's a combination of those cuts as plus reform options. As a matter of fact, I just spoke to the new DCMA leader on Monday, and we walked through this. And what we're trying to do is show them alternatives. But sometimes the cuts um, are necessary because either programs or what have you don't necessarily align with the secretary's priorities right now. And so that is part of you know, looking at what makes sense and what maybe has outlived its time. So we look at reform as well as efficiencies, and some of those may come in cut. But what we want to do is make sure that bettering the organization, whether it's through reform initiatives or different business model uh, constructs, that all of those are taken into consideration for the most efficiencies. And by doing that, the amount that we've been able to either realize or have identified as potential opportunities is coming down to about a run rate, I would say, of about a billion dollars a month. So if you look at it collectively, um, it is a combination of those cuts and reforms and what opportunities they may have even to restructure that makes it a better running organization. When I came to DOD, I had to learn 
all, a huge number of acronyms. And I said, if, if I leave with a, a legacy I'm proud of, it's not only what we've been able to give back to the taxpayer and the warfighter, but also uh, what I call ETDBW, easy to do business with. And those are some of the things that from the private sector definitely have some pertinent uh, with what we're doing. And again, I know the point is not just to make cuts here, but but certainly the success of this initiative is going to be judged in part on how much money you found. So, so do you have any at least preliminary estimates for what the total savings across the fourth estate are going to be as a result of this? Sure. As a matter of fact, so if I if you look at um, what we've been able to accomplish, so what's in process already for execution. You know, it's just north of $11 billion. So now what we're doing is we've identified opportunities. And, you know, again, they, they're going through the review, so this is not something that's ready, certainly ready to be booked. But the opportunities just in the fourth estate, we have found over $6.5 billion in potential savings. Those are awaiting review, and we're going through that process now. And by following the money, starting in the fourth estate, particularly with contracts, we have found another $2.9 billion that is to the betterment in the services. And so that's currently where we are, and we're you know, uh, doing the review on that and seeing what's feasible and the timing. But that's where we are to date. And there's more to come. Lisa Hirschman is the Defense Department's Chief Management Officer. Short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some of the critiques the Defense Business Board recently made of the CMO's office and why Congress seems poised to eliminate the office. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serby. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we're talking with Lisa Hirschman, the Defense Department's Chief Management Officer. As I mentioned before the break, the House and Senate are both working on legislation that would eliminate the CMO's office. That push motivated in part by a recent Defense Business Board study that found the CMO has not delivered the transformational business change Congress had in mind when it created the office. I want to dig a little bit into the critiques that were presented in the Defense Business Board's findings on, on the CMO, and we certainly don't have time to cover them all, but the, the quick summary I would give our listeners who haven't read it is, is basically that, you know, even though it's, it's not like anybody's doing anything wrong, there's been a lot of good people doing good work over the years, but that the, the CMO office is not organizationally situated in a way that would allow it to drive transformational change. And the, the, some of the numbers that they come up with are... In fiscal year 19, for example, the office only came up with validated savings of $6.7 billion for FY19. And and part of that is because CMO and its predecessor kind of have a history of taking credit for savings that would have happened anyway or that were actually generated by the military departments. And I wonder if you could just respond to those specific criticisms. Well, um, sure. So let, let me point out a couple of things is, number one, um, in the past, and I've done my homework on what has been accomplished, that never happened before. So do I you know, dispute the fact that, and we've started our conversation, it's in a partnership uh, that we do this together and there is a certain level of execution, people find their own uh, opportunities, we present opportunities that we give to them, 
we run it through my reform management group and make decisions and help enable and and uh, give them uh, techniques to uh, execute. All of that is done in a partnership. So to say, you know, standalone, we could have done it without. My question is, then why haven't any of these numbers been posted in the past? So second of all, you know, the department as a whole has gone under a tremendous amount of scrutiny and criticism towards any numbers that they've presented in terms of being able to lend validity. And so one thing we did first thing when I joined the organization was create a definition for reform. So delaying a contract may free up cash in one year, but I don't count that as a reform. So we put some definitions and then we you know, partnered with Comptroller and said, help us validate it. So we provided a way of validating progress. We are now working on a way of validating any progress made in working capital funds. But specific to the DBB, the other thing that was challenging with their report was they downplayed the past two years of a very different role at a very different level in the organization. So you talked about situationally located. Congress got it right this time. They have it as a high-level person that is focused on the form, where the 10 years prior, it was a lesser level, did not have the authorities to back it, about 40% of the time it was vacant. And so when you take all that and unfortunately lump it together, it actually doesn't, it doesn't present what's actually happened, the momentum and the progress and the, uh, and, you know, the, the um, trajectory that has been uh, accomplished and what we're seeing now. Yeah, even even accepting the premise that Congress got the org structure right this time, there has been a lot of tinkering with this office over the years, both by Congress and, and by various secretaries. I mean, there was a point a few years ago when, for reasons that have never been clear to me, OCMO got put in charge of running the physical plant in, in the National Capital Region. There's things like the Armed Forces Retirement Home. For a while, you had responsibility for business IT systems, and now you don't. And I'm just wondering how much of a distraction has all of that churn been, just in terms of what what the office, again, this small office's responsibilities really are. Right. Um, so let me let me address some of those. So there is a direct linkage with, say, business systems and aligning it with business operations. So in other words, make sure your processes and your business operations, which is what the CMO owns, is a before you start investing in IT dollars. So that made sense. The Armed Forces Retirement Home was operationally challenged until it was sent to us to fix it. And that's part of what we've done. We looked at the way the management construct was. We changed out people and put in um, people with experience. We looked at the business operations and how to measure success. So that's why it was put in place. So that was a good intention. The problem is, they, they are changing things so quickly that we don't necessarily always get a chance to uh, make some progress. And business systems is a great example. It went into place on uh, January 1 of 2019. 
And within four months, uh, proposed NDAA language was to change it. And so it's very, very difficult to get your arms around the problem and start moving out on solutions and, and showing demonstrable improvement when the shift is happening that rapidly. Yeah, I, I imagine. And, and speaking of changes, there is an effort to completely disestablish CMO, as you well know. Um, it's not a unanimous view, obviously, in Congress that it should be disestablished, but the, the CMO skeptics do seem to be uh, winning the argument in both houses of Congress at the moment. F- fundamentally, what, what do you think it is that Congress, from your point of view, is not understanding about the sex- successes that you think that you've had? And, and why, why have you so far not been able to convince lawmakers that, that you're doing good work and the office needs to stay? Well, um, and as you said before, I think right now a lot of folks are paying, paying attention to one flawed report that, again, combines 10 years of uh, of looking at it at a lesser position and combining it with two years of success. And so that dilutes uh, the effectiveness. You know, bluntly speaking, and especially from my many, many, many years of experience in transformation and reform in the private sector, Congress got it right. Congress got it right by putting it at the level that it is, giving it the statutory authority. By the way, the DBB report points out that it has never been fully instantiated and supported and resourced, but none of their recommendations address what they identified as the root cause. So it's based on that flawed report. Um, it's on, I think there is a, a, a misunderstanding of the need to get in what it takes to truly transform and fundamentally change the way an organization operates, it takes time. And as I said before, 18 to 36 months is the minimum, and that's during a time when you don't expect any results. And the fact that we are looking at 21 billion in results, and now they're taking, you know, a risk to pull that all away and put it down to a lesser position that's been proven by the DVD themselves to not be effective, um, it's unfortunate because what's at risk now is the accomplishment, the trajectory, that ability to replace across-the-board cuts with true reform, and that has an impact to our taxpayers and preferred warfighters at risk because everything that has been saved through reform across the OD has gone back to support the warfighter. And that's been confirmed by our controller. So it's unfortunate. Look, people are resistant to change. This is a big change. This is about moving people's cheese. This is about pointing out problems, which is very uncomfortable. And DOD is no different from the private sector. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It can be unpopular. But as I said, we have established and worked hard at partnerships to finally come into that opportunity to make significant change. And and I will also say that even today, uh, the secretary posted uh, on the DOD website a summary of his one-year accomplishments. And the things that he lists as his top 10 accomplishments include 
billions of dollars in savings. And having a senior leader focused on the management of the Fulton State. So, you know, this is a, you're seeing the shift within the organization. And it would be great to have it, give it some more time. I'm not opposed to review. GAO has reviewed us several times. They have complained and asked for this role to be instantiated since as far back as 2007 to have someone focus on reform, not to become part of somebody else's already overburdened portfolio. You know, instantiate it with the secretary's desire for the fourth state leadership and let it be part of the GAO biannual review on the high risk list. I, I, I think that is a way to make sure that we don't put risk into the tremendous savings that we've uh, either already accomplished or identified. I know time's very short, so as we wrap up here, I'm just going to throw out an observation and you can tell me how much you agree or disagree with it. I'm a little bit skeptical of the concept of transformational change in big public sector bureaucracies. I'm not sure the extent to which the idea that people have in their minds about, you know, transforming things in one year with big bang operations really even works in in, in a public sector bureaucracy. But things do get better over time. It's pushing a rock up a hill. But you got to have somebody pushing the rock, and I'm not sure that you always have that person. And it, 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 if you don't have a CMO-like entity, it depends a lot on who the secretary is at the time, and if the secretary is focused on those issues. No, I, uh, you're spot on, Jared. As a matter of fact, I wrote about this in my book because you know, as far back as the mid '90s when we started studying this. It can start at a grassroots level, but it has to have a top leader support, endorsement, and absolute commitment in order to make this happen. And the best way to approach it is what we're doing at DOD. It's not a, um, you have to start with getting some successes and build that momentum. And people will start out skeptical, but when they become part of the solution, then you can increase that velocity dramatically. And that's what you do. You, you can't change 45,000 contracting officers overnight. But we can start buying things in one category with one person managing all the contracts for that category and build on that. And that's how it happens. It takes momentum, it takes time, and it takes that senior leadership uh, endorsement, whether that com- that's a combination of having somebody relentlessly focused on it, like a CMO. And by the way, this isn't about me personally. This is about the role. Having that instantiated is a way to also transmit that support and that commitment. And so having that instantiated is really important, especially in the DOD culture. That's what people look to. And if it continues to not be um, put in place as a permanent structure, then everyone's going to question it. And that's part of what's happened here. So you are spot on. I will share with you a quote from a senior leader in Congress that said, Lisa, I don't want a bunch of people uh, thinking about reform some of the time. I need a senior leader who is focused on it all of the time. 
Lisa Hirschman is the Defense Department's Chief Management Officer. She joined us to talk about the office itself and tackle some of the criticisms in Congress and by the Defense Business Board about the CMO's effectiveness. If you missed any part of our conversation, we'll post this week's show at federalnewsnetwork.com. Another short break, and when we return, we'll talk about Navy reforms in the contracting space as that service works to overhaul its contract writing system. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Both the Army and the Navy are in the middle of an ambitious effort to replace several of the antiquated IT systems they use to write contracts with a single modern system. Officials hope it'll be a big step toward eventually getting the entire Defense Department onto a shared contract writing system. That's a goal that's been on the books for years now. The Navy's version of the solution is called Electronic Procurement System, and some of the first test deployments are planned for this summer. For this part of the show, we turn to Cindy Shaver, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Procurement, and Ruth Youngs Liu, the Program Executive Officer for Enterprise Information Systems. They recorded this conversation with my colleague Jason Miller in December. Navy EPS is a commercial off-the-shelf solution designed to manage the entire life cycle of defense contracting and in compliance with all federal acquisition regulations, Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement, and the Navy Marine Corps Acquisition Regulation Supplements, and all other DOD and federal regulations. Uh, the DOD um, has been working with us for several years to try to put the EPS system in place. And I will tell you, uh, just to go through the legacy systems, in FY19, uh, the Department of Navy did about $120 billion in contract execution with industry across 250,000 actions. The Navy currently uses five legacy contract writing systems, including 13 separate hosted and managed instances of the standard procurement system with 65-plus databases and 75-plus interfaces. The standard procurement system is more than 20 years old, and our people do an amazing job of keeping this legacy system working, but to say it is fragile and antiquated is an understatement. So additionally, these systems have not kept pace with the current acquisition environment, and contracting officers spend an enormous amount of time going in and out of systems and various databases that don't talk to each other and waiting for old systems to process. So this system will do wonders in increasing our agility, driving efficiency, as well as supporting audibility in a common data environment for the OSD. A lot there. Let me ask you... As you went through that, it reminded me a lot of what the Army is going through as well, and and this seems to be a a cross-DOD challenge. As you approached this system, the the electronic procurement system, as you worked with DOD and you worked with others uh, across uh, the Army, across the Navy, the underlying theme here seems to be agility, drive efficiency, support audibility. Talk maybe a little bit about the, the process by which you guys went to uh, set it up the system, the, the, the market research. Walk me through a little bit. So as the functional lead for the Department of Navy, uh, my office is the one that worked to uh, develop the requirements for the EPS procurement system. And, you know, we conducted extensive market research through the analysis of alternatives process, looking at various COT solutions in the marketplace that were out there and developing uh, a source selection methodology um, to actually 
test and drive these COT solutions um, during the source selection process. Um, in addition, we've also worked with the other services and OSD to ensure that we're focusing on a common data environment. Um, we all have many common processes. There's a lot of commonality with the services. There's common interfaces with the OSD and a kind of common data environment, as well as common regulations and processes. However, there's a lot of key differences, too, how we're organized, how our funds flow, how our requirements flow, uh, unique financial and logistics interfaces through the various services, as well as even different types of appropriation based upon what we buy can drive uniqueness. So idealistically, we're working to be as common as practical across the services and the OSD while we reduce duplication, but also you know, understanding that there are practical differences amongst the services based upon what we buy. I'm glad you brought up the practical differences because I think that's a key piece because one of the things that we've seen is both the Army and the Navy are buying very, very similar systems, CGI momentum. Uh, they may not be the exact same duplicate, but but they're very similar. And Congress has said very clearly, we definitely want DOD to consolidate and potentially get down to one system. When you did the alternatives of analysis, when you did some of that research, was there an 80-20 rule did you look at, meaning we could be 80% the same but 20% different or would, however the different percentages work out? I can't actually give you an actual percentage of commonality. Again, I will tell you common data environment has been our focus. And the utopia is, of course, to get to would be wonderful to have one system. However, given where all the services are in working on very antiquated systems, this is the first step in that longevity. You know, first we started all writing contracts on paper. And now we're working towards common data standards and a common data environment. And then we can then hopefully, you know, standardize all processes as much as possible to get to singular systems. This is the first big step um, along that process. But given the situation, I think, where all the services are working on very old and antiquated systems, the time to act is now. So this is, this is the proper step in that progression. So, so one of the things that we obviously, when we talked to the Army about, we learned about was they had some fits and starts over the first two and a half years, and it took them a while to get going. And have you guys felt like you've you're able to, been able to avoid some of those potholes that the maybe the Army stepped in based on learning from them? Because one of the things that they had trouble with that we we talked to them was the requirements piece. Could the CGI product meet the Army's needs, or did the Army have to change their business processes to meet CGI's needs? You know, get away from the custom software development. When you, as you guys have developed your requirements, have you been able to avoid those challenges that the Army seemed to have? have? So uh, let me talk a little bit about the source selection without going into any source selection sensitive data. But again, I talked earlier about the Don conducting you know extensive research regarding COT solutions. Uh, that were developed, and we took a source select selection methodology to actually test drive the proposed COT solutions during our source selection. So we had a group that involved all of our uh, contract executing activities sit down and develop our requirements uh, that we needed for this tool to perform. 
So when we went into source selection, we actually included executing contracting officers for our, from our various DON activities, and we had them test drive these proposed solutions during source selection using real contract data, use cases that we specifically picked that uh, covered the broad range of products and services that we buy so that we could really put the product through its, through its paces in a test environment during source selection. And, you know, it was the basis upon which, you know, we selected uh, CGI as the proposed solution. Are there gaps? Yes, there are gaps, gaps that we, that we identified during source selection with the company. And I will say they are some of the functionality gaps that the Army is currently experiencing right now, which is where we're teaming very closely with them, as well as working with CGI to make sure we understand those gaps and they're executing their gap closure methodology that they've laid out. I know you can't get into the who you tested, but roughly how many did you test during that test drive? So we can't go into details about the specific analysis and source selection. Is that because the numbers would say there's two, there's four? I mean, I guess I'm trying to just understand the numbers versus – I understand you couldn't say we tested product X and product Y and product Z. I get that. But I thought the numbers would be something that you can tell us just based on um, – would not get into the sensitivity side, but you're telling me it does. So I can tell you we, we tested multiple products. Let's let's move forward on this idea of some of the uh, gaps. Can you tell us what those some of those gaps are currently, and that you're trying to fill, and, and how you're going about filling them? This is Ruth. So uh, we we have a lot that's going to be happening over the next six to twelve months, and we'll definitely be benefiting from some of the common work already completed on the Army contract writing system. Um, from a, a gap perspective, as part of our um, source selection, the the vendors had to, um, part of our requirements to pass the gate review was that 80% of the product capability requirements had to be met. And then the remaining requirements are part of a gap closure plan. Um, Over the next uh, 6 to 12 months, we're addressing that. We're also cleansing the data in our legacy systems, working on configuration adaptations uh, with a particular focus on workflows, interfaces, and data migration. And we anticipate that in the next six months, we will have our inter- interim authority to test and we'll conduct our integration testing. In the next 12 months, we anticipate issuance of our authority to operate, our ATO, uh, completing our user training, conducting mock data migrations, and then a limited deployment go live to approximately 300 users. That's Ruth Youngs Liu, the Program Executive Officer for Enterprise Information Systems, along with Cindy Shaver, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Procurement, talking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller about the Navy's new electronic procurement system. More of the conversation in just a moment. This is on DOD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes with Cindy Shaver, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Procurement, and Ruth Youngs Liu, the Program Executive Officer for Enterprise Information Systems. They talked with my colleague Jason Miller about the new Navy electronic procurement system set for some initial deployments this summer. Cindy mentioned something early on about the time it takes to go in between systems to uh, the the efficiency side and, and Ruth, you brought that up too. Walk me through maybe some of those the current status of some of the the contract writing systems 
and how long it takes today to you know walk through the business processes that you guys have. Uh, are you able to have you quantified it? Meaning, oh, an average contract could take two hours, could take thirty minutes. It, it depends. Help me understand where we're at today and, and why tomorrow, if you will, will be so much better. So this is Cindy. So I wished I could predict for you how long it takes for our current systems to process a contract document. I will tell you it is a totally unpredictable process, and that's part of, again, an antiquated system that is very fragile. Uh, We have some horror stories out on the field of watching contracting officers sit at their desk for more than a day watching what I call the SWAD, the spinning wheel of death of standard procurement systems spin while we try to post a mod to an existing contract Um, and, and seeing databases at times crash because, again, the load it takes on the system when you have so many contracts and writing a contract and a modification to conform to that contract, especially on a major systems contract. So uh, it is it is somewhat an unpredictable process, and uh, contracting officers are struggling with it. Um, being able to again go to one system that will feed the federal procurement data systems, not have to go in and out of different websites and databases to make sure contracts are eligible to receive award, um, knowing that their current certifications are prior to award. This will all be now one integrated end-to-end product that will again greatly help the contracting officer meet the mission um, and, and improve our efficiencies. I want to go back to the work that you guys are doing, not just across the duty, but specifically with the Army. What we heard from the folks at the Army was you guys are meeting, if not monthly, very often to go over current status to talk about challenges you both are having or separately having and how you overcome it. Walk me through some of the communications that's happening with the Army and how you're trading, sharing lessons learned, and and how you guys are trying to get better together and move forward with this program. So definitely we're, we're working really closely with the Army on this. Um, at the leadership level, you know, both the Army and Navy, uh, the Deputy Assistant Secretaries, the PEOs, you know, so both the functional and the PEO side, we meet on a regular basis and talk on a regular basis. Um, we also meet at the PM level and at um, the levels below that, too. So coordination across all activities. Um, we also have a designated liaison co-located with the Army team, and we coordinate reviews of deliverables, discuss uh, and work through areas of potential efficiencies, and this includes you know, reusing documentation such as interface designs, cybersecurity artifacts, that kind of thing. We're also looking at you know, uh, working on aligning software configuration decisions, um, coordinating software testing, enhancement requests, and potentially license purchases. Even We're looking at that now. Um, so definitely coordinating across the two uh, and working very closely between us on a, a not just a monthly on a very regular basis. Has there because the Army is ahead of the Navy in, in many ways when it comes to this contract writing system? Are are there anything you could point to to say, hey, they may have stepped in that hole, but we were able to avoid it? Is there any anecdotes you're able to share? So this is Cindy. I would say that you know 
Ruth talked a little bit about our working right now with the Army, but the reality is, is we've been working with both of the services as well as OSD, you know, during our analysis of alternative pro uh, process. And we took a somewhat different approach in the Department of Navy. We actually put out, you know, a fairly detailed requirements document, um, which was a somewhat of a different approach. And, you know, again, we did a test drive in our source selection where we actually put the product through its paces. So I feel like, you know, when we came into this, part of it was we knew exactly uh, kind of what the product baseline was and where the issues were um, and had talked with the Army to know where their gaps were so that we could make sure that, you know, we're leveraging each other's lessons learned as best as possible um, because, again, we want to see we want to see the product succeed, we want to see the program succeed, and we have um, shared interests and leverage opportunities that, that Ms. Young's-Lew went through um, between the Army and the Navy to get to program success. All right, let me bring in Jared here for a second. I know he maybe had a question or two. Yeah, really just a couple big picture things beyond what uh, what you've already covered, Jason. And and, and the one, one point your Army counterparts have made over and over again is that the as-is environment kind of forces contracting officers officers to think at a, at a tactical level is the way they put it, which I take to mean at a very contract-by-contract contract level just because – well, at least partly because the systems are so cumbersome that it's just very hard to deal with more than one contract at a time. So once you get to FOC on this, what does it enable? What does it enable the Department of the Navy to start doing as far as looking at all of your contracting from an enterprise view? So this is Cindy. So I will say that when you look at, again, our $120 billion plus of spend across the Department of Navy, we have a very wide portfolio. We buy everything from simplified services all the way to complex aircraft carriers and submarines that take many years to construct. So when you look about the, at the structure of a contract, they can be very simplistic or they can be very complex. We buy ships. Only the Navy does. We buy airplanes like the Air Force. We buy ground vehicles through the Marine Corps like, like, the, like the Army does. Um, we, have, we buy IT systems, and everybody buys IT systems, but we have a very, very diverse portfolio across the Navy. So we need the contract writing system to be flexible enough to allow the contracting officers to you know, be able to buy what they need to buy in the contractual manner that allows all the flexibilities that the FAR and the DFARs allow, um, but also capturing it in a data-driven environment so that we can utilize the spend, make queries as far as what clauses are or are not in a contract, look at the type of spend we have, um, just so that we have the information of running a business um, at our fingertips, which again, across disparate systems, is very, very challenging at best and often results in manual data calls. And then the other piece that I need to make sure that I hit on is auditability. You know, the Department of, of Navy is working to make sure that we are fully auditable, so capturing this data accurately across all the procurement that we do in execution is key to making sure that we are fully audit uh, compliant. Yeah, p part of what I'm getting at, I think, is I'm just wondering, once you've got you know, these modern tool sets in place, will you be able to do things like, and, and I, I'm just making this example up, but, but do things like match a particular requirement to a particular recommended contract vehicle or best-in-class contract or something like that 
instead of just relying solely on the, the contracting officer's own knowledge and abilities? Well, certainly we'll have a lot of search capability to make sure that, uh, you know, we know is what in our, what's in our contracting environment. Um, but the reality is, is I want to make sure that it is um, a flexible tool so that the contracting officers can utilize it for execution and writing the contracts that they have. But certainly having the data all in one place and being able to search it um, will be very helpful. And again, for all the inquiries of any question you could ever ask with regards to what is in a contract, um, having the data um, integrated and in one spot is, is going to be a huge improvement from where we are today. Again, the takeaway that uh, I would leave you with is just um, the game changer that this will be to our contracting and procurement executing com uh, community in making sure that uh, we have the tools that are necessary uh, for contract writing um, so that we are able to be as agile as possible, um, efficient as possible, and, and meet all the requirements for auditability. Uh, this will be um, a huge step in the right direction for the Department of Navy. Cindy Shaver is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Procurement, and Ruth Youngs-Liu is the Program Executive Officer for Enterprise Information Systems. They talked with Federal News Network's Jason Miller and I about the Navy's new electronic procurement system in December. Before that, I spoke with Lisa Hirschman, DOD's Chief Management Officer, about the CMO's office and congressional efforts to eliminate it. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's full show at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod and in our podcast feed. Subscribe to ondod on Podcast One or Apple Podcasts. That's it for this week's show. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.